Hello, you're listening to Alpha Bunga Bunga. This is episode 14 bis, a bonus section on the crisis of the media with journalist Jason Walsh, in which we talk a little bit more about the effect that the populist wave has had on the media, as well as discussing the situation in France subsequent to Macron's election and the way the media has reacted there. So what we wanted, I mean, the other, the other thing I wanted to kind of get your view on was this point about the political, the establishment. Um, so that we have this kind of populist challenge to um, the so-called kind of centrist, liberal, technocratic, whatever you want to call it, establishment, which is not just political, but also supposedly media-based, that you have the MSM, right, the mainstream media, um, who control what we think and believe and are overwhelmingly influential and have been able to squeeze out um, marginal voices, ordinary, yeah. ordinary people think, yeah, what ordinary folk think, plain kind of thinking, straightforward common sense. Um, so insofar as we have a genuine democratic crisis, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I think, you know, putting this as a serious problem, that we have an issue of political elites who are remote and detached um, from the concerns of the citizens within their countries, how far is the media implicated in that problem of that disconnect between the public, the citizens, and their political representatives, given that so much is made of it currently? I would never say the media is without blame in, in, in these situations. I mean, for example, if you wanted to make a democratic um, public argument for Europe, for the European Union, which some people have been sort of hinting at recently. Um, what you would do is throw it open to the media and, uh, and, and, and scrutinize what it's doing on a daily basis. Now, I don't mean you know, Boris Johnson for the Daily Telegraph writing about bendy bananas. I mean really examining what the European Commission is doing or the Council of Ministers or any of these other EU bodies that all have the same name. Um, they have manifestly failed to do that. And they have failed on two levels. They failed because it's too boring, they're not interested, and people won't read it. You know, that's a problem. But, you know, you, you do it anyway. You know, uh, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down and all that. But I, 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 you also do it because it's important. And I've never denied, I'm not saying that the media has no power, that the media is completely powerless, uh, that, 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 you know... W- uh, Lebdev bought a newspaper because he thought it would be a wizard wheeze. Uh, he bought a newspaper or two newspapers because he thought he would wield political influence. That's not even in question. Uh, it's just that I don't accept the A, a to B, 2 plus 2 equals 4 answer that, uh, you know, I print something on the front page of a newspaper and everyone else believes it. I think the media has failed, or the press specifically, has failed to address questions of democratic governance Questions, particularly of economics, in the in the last until very recently, in the last thirty years, we've seen very little discussion of the economic organisation of society, and I think these are are, are significant failures, um, and they need to be addressed. They need to be fixed. Um, newspapers and journalists in general need to take these questions more seriously. I have no problem, you know, hands up saying that, um, and I don't have a magic bullet solution where I can I can make people read, kind of tough articles about are we uh, are we seeing a repeat now with uh, robotics and algorithms is that a repeat of what happened to the steel workers and miners in the 1980s but i think that daily coverage of 
the world outside ourselves, the world outside our ego, the world outside our individual subject is extraordinarily important and, uh, and shouldn't be uh, ignored. I'm sorry if that's uh, a slightly evasive philosophical answer to your question, but it's the best I can do. Mm, totally evasive and philosophical, but we're actually, luckily for you, we're not actually opposed to um, philosophical responses, at least, if not evasive ones. Um, so, but then kind of linked to that and emerging from that question is how far, so usually, like I mean, like I suggested, I mean, it's usually cast that we have this... Um, Look, let me put it to you, let me, let, me, let me put it to you very bluntly. If I say to you, um, you are a representative of the world as it is, Philip. I am. Yeah, you it's are. True. It's It's everything is because every, everything is organized for your benefit. And I say, I would like things to be organized differently. I would like things to be more market-oriented, or I would like things to be less market-oriented. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is, the, the problem is, when someone in that position is confronted with, there is a problem, there is an expectation that the person will respond with the perfect answer. Well, no one said things were perfect. Um, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Uh, go on. <laughs> uh, I think I made that was the blunt. That was the blunt bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I mean is, um, you know, if you say to me uh, as a reporter, the the press has failed in its duty to explain the world in terms that might actually, you know. Uh, help people make decisions and you know push politics along and, and help us all live our lives in some kind of meaningful social and public sense you know I'll, I'll put my hands up and say yes that's true but I mean what are you going to do yeah no that's that's right and I think again as you've illustrated well and as we've been talking about over the podcast that a kind of a, some political resurgence and a feeling that things matter suddenly does change that and it changes it perhaps not because I think the expectation is that the media has to change. And suddenly it's actually, you know, there is a, a, a certain degree to which they can meet halfway, which is to say that consumers of news, that is the public, um, being, have, being feeling like they, you know, have an internal drive to learn about the world because it suddenly matters. Um, I don't think that resolves the, the crisis of the media and, and you know, the, the economic issues behind that. Um, but there does seem to be at least some sort of, of, of a rapprochement between kind of the production and the consumption side. Well, I, I think that, I mean, without being too simplistic about it, I think that, that, that the election of Trump and Brexit and the resulting fill-up in newspaper sales and interest in public affairs and people suddenly caring about the world they live in proves my point, which is that if something is at stake, whether I like it or not, people will pay attention. So the question, the, the problem, the fault does not lie with journalists. The fault lies with our political class. You know, you, they ha something has to be at stake. So on this point then about the um, how far we have this kind of, usually the way in which the battle lines are drawn is that you have on the one side, you have um, a kind of uh, beleaguered, liberal, technocratic, centrist elite who are kind of being assailed by blows of uh, the blows of populists and far right um, extremists or people like Jeremy Corbyn and Syriza maybe. Um, so you have kind of this assault on the radical on the centre from left and right, um, and in the centre you have the mainstream media. 
Um, that's the way in which the battle are usually portrayed. But how far could you also say that this kind of wider division between populism and liberalism, how far could we say that it doesn't, that fracture line doesn't just run between po in politics? It also runs between the media too. Um, because you obviously we've had, you know, I mean, um, the British media split fairly evenly down the middle in terms of its responses to Brexit. So there wasn't any, you know, I mean... Yeah, no, in, in fact, of, just, 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 just interrupt, just, no, 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 just, just, in, just interrupt you very briefly on that exact point. If you forget about print circulation numbers and look at online numbers, it was literally an even split between pro and anti-Brexit in the run-up to the referendum. Yeah. yeah. Which is really important, I think. I mean, you know, the... Despite you had, I mean, you know, there was clearly kind of an establishment consensus on Brexit, but nonetheless, you know, you had an even split between um, the major kind of media organs, whether that be the broadsheets, major newspapers, including the tabloids or the kind of political press magazines. There was a kind of even split. But on the other hand, we have, like you say, kind of um, in the US, you have this the Fox News who, like you say, kind of opposed Trump in during the primaries and before he won the Republican nomination. And now that he's in office, kind of defend him, but at the same time have this um, kind of ambivalent relationship towards him in that they're willing to snipe at him in a way that they might not have been willing to snipe at previous Republican presidents. So does the do the kind of political divisions between populism and liberalism, do they also run between the media? Because usually the media are castigated as being the NSM, as being kind of liberal, elitist, metropolitan, technocratic. And that everything that is outside the media is, um, you know, kind of speaks for the voice of the people or whatever. But how far does that division between populism and liberalism, how far does it actually fracture media, the, the media itself? There's an element of truth in the division. Uh, there's no question that people in the press and the media tend to have, uh, for a start, a herd mentality. But without even getting into that, yeah, I mean, there, there, there is a predominant view. And it does support the kind of, if you like, liberal centre against the populists. Uh, although, you know, you see fringe outlets starting to challenge that. And, you know, that's how newspapers were born back in the day. That's how the Northern Star was born, or the Poor Man's Guardian, or the Manchester Guardian, or any of these newspapers that we now think of as establishment, you know, at one point would have you know, started quite often at, at the fringes of society. Obviously, that's not true of the spectator or the Daily Universal Register, um, which became the Times. Um, but, you know, I just think it's incumbent upon people who, who find themselves on the fringes to make their argument. And I, I, I think that their complaints about the, the centre don't really hold. Um, you know, if you find yourself in a fringe position, it's your, it's your job to turn your fringe position into a mainstream position. And I think we have seen that to some degree, although it's very far from settled in, in both the cases of Trump and um, and Brexit. Although, as I said right at the beginning of the podcast, I would try to draw some distinction between the two because I, I, I think that uh, it's just too simplistic to see them as, as, as the same side of the same coin, if you like. But, yeah, I don't have a problem with saying that the majority of the media does take a fairly... Uh, don't change anything establishment view. Well, I mean, what do you expect? These are these are people that are the minor functionaries of the establishment. What I would expect no different from academics. Oh, well, no <laughs> academics. I think you don't understand. Academics are like we um, we speak truth to power. We have like you, our, you, you speak um, untruth. You, you speak untruth. To, you, you speak untruth to no one. 
<laughs> we we have our we speak the post post-structuralist um discursive network-based polycentric models of understanding you're, you're, that you're, you're, that actually you're, the world is much more complicated but you know you're self-mocking and i i agree with you but the problem is the problem that academics face is exactly the same as the problem journalists face and it has played out in slightly different ways but you both see themselves as or have come to see themselves as oppositional forces in society and the question is are they really and even should they be and i'm i'm just not sure about the answer to either of those questions so there is there is kind of this kind of winds back to where we began now so we would I mean you made some great points about the kind of um the way in which the US media landscape has changed and the place of the New York Times and the Washington Post in the way in which they've kind of thrust themselves forward um, in challenging the Trump presidency and the popular kind of support, at least in terms of the in terms of subscriptions that they've got. But something, you know, because, I mean, we have an Anglophone. Um, our listeners are basically Anglophone. Um, so it would be interesting, I think, for us, it would be interesting to hear your perspective as somebody who's based in France as to how the French media, which includes, I mean, some of the greatest kind of traditional um, MSM, if you want to use that word, of the kind of old media landscape, um, Le Figaro, um, Libération, and uh, Le Monde, and so on, how they responded to the Macron presidency, and particularly and the most latest kind of the kind of apparently the um, downturn in his popularity. Yeah. How does how does the French media hold up in the new kind of media landscape and in response to? a new kind of, um, a very particular, a new kind of political project that's embodied in the Macron presidency. Well, you know, it's very interesting. Um, no one in France would be gauche enough to copy The Economist and picture Macron walking on water. Um, but certainly during the uh, election, that was pretty much the view. Uh, certainly uh, after François Fillon, the conservative candidate, was basically uh, torpedoed with the uh, allegations that he was... Uh, illicitly paying his wife for work undone. Um, Macron was anointed not so much as president of France as king of France. And uh, what was very interesting is that the, the left media in particular completely supported him, presumably due to their utter humiliation under the presidency of uh, François Hollande. Um, so when you, when, you, when you say the left media, specifically, who do you mean? Uh, Libération, uh, Le Monde. And uh, so the left-wing media supported Macron, like, openly? Like, they turned in support of him and they attacked Hollande? How did it work? Well, they, did, they didn't attack Hollande, but, I mean, Hollande was seen as a kind of national embarrassment. I mean, frankly, I don't think Hollande was a particularly good president, but I think that the tugging of, uh, the, the, the rending of garments over Hollande uh, puzzled me slightly. I'm not exactly sure why the French... Were so hum felt so humiliated by his presidency. It just seemed to me, as an outsider, just another run-of-the-mill, not particularly interesting French president. Um, but here in France, he was seen as an absolute, you know, just a gargantuan embarrassment. And Macron was the man that was going to come along and fix. Well, no, initially Macron was not the man. The the, the first um, the first candidate for fixing France was Alain Juppé, the conservative. But once he was dealt with. Um, the whole question came down to Macron or the uh, uh, the mainstream versus Le Pen, and when you get such a uh, 
what would you say, um, divided uh, and, 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 and simple question. Uh, do we vote for the uh, quasi-fascist or do we vote for the Mr. Mainstream? Um, everyone fell into line immediately behind uh, Macron. Now, his political program uh, does not suit everyone in France, of course. It, it, it doesn't suit everyone on the left. It's, you know, uh, I, I hate to use this term, um, criticize people for using this term, but it is, you know, what we call a neoliberal program. You can call it a centrist program if you want. But his idea is to reform France and bring it very much into line with the Anglophone world, the United States, Great Britain. That's, uh, that's, that's a, a, a fairly difficult pill to swallow in France. And um, the big question for me is, after the September 12th strike, which we're all waiting on, um, when the uh, CGT, the, uh, the large uh, ex-communist left-wing union, goes on strike, that will be the first significant test of Macron's power. And it will be interesting then to see whether the media rally behind the programme of, you know, reheated... Gerhard Schroeder, Tony Blair style reform, or they tack to the left and and support a kind of Jeremy Corbyn protectionist, arguably even Trumpist agenda. Has the French media seen like um, has it seen a similar boost in terms of wider political interest to the disintegration of um, the Socialist Party? And all the um, surprises that came through the French election? Well, I don't have any circulation figures to hand, so I can't tell you if there's been a direct political boost, but I can tell you what I, I know from speaking to people, which was that they were very invigorated during the presidential election and their interest completely collapsed for the parliamentary elections. Um, I mean, and you can see this in the turnout figures, of course, as well. Um, Macron performed handsomely in the presidential, but his party, uh, which is now, you know, utterly dominant in Parliament, is dominant on the basis of a, of, of a fairly pathetic turnout. Um, uh, it, it really does feel like uh, a lot of people in France came together to defeat Marine Le Pen and the uh, National Front, uh, but they were not unified behind Macron at all. And I felt that the Anglophone reporting uh, of the triumph of Macron severely overstated his popularity. So how does this fit into the model you presented about the Anglophone media or the UK, US media, about the renewed interest in politics. I mean, because it seems, I mean, you know, there seems to me there are significant, the, um, you know, the electoral defeat of the Socialist Party is a huge, huge phenomenon. So, I mean, it seems to me there are, you know, significant political restructurings and yeah. changes. I mean, I without, without, with, with, well. without being kind of rude about it, the electoral defeat of the Socialist Party, which is, you know, decimated. Um, and the decline, significant decline, decline of the, the right-wing party, the uh, Les Republicains, formerly the UMP, um, which is, while not as dramatic as the Socialist Party, is still, you know, quite significant, um, is seems to be of interest only to weirdos like me and you and Alex who follow politics on a, in, in, in sort of micro detail. Um, I think Macron's victory has uh, solidified a certain French fatalism, um, because if you, by by way of analogy, if the um, British election just passed the general election had been won uh, not by Theresa May and not by Jeremy Corbyn, but actually Tony Blair had come back from the wilderness and become prime minister and. The question would be: Does anyone really care about this? We're just back to how things were in two thousand and two, and. That seems to be the sense here. Things have returned to normal. I mean, this is a country that has been, although it hasn't suffered any more than Britain particularly, it has been battered 
you know, quite significantly by terrorism, and certainly battered in 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 the foreign um, anglophone press about its its racism and and so on and so forth. And the French seem content to just return to stasis, uh, business as usual, uh, which marks it out as quite different from what has happened recently in the UK, what has happened in, in the United States. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we've discussed this quite a bit on, on this podcast on past episodes about France, partly because it's been in the news, but also because it does seem to be an interesting sort of test case for, for sort of the wave of populism. And, and, and I think something that we've, discussed in the past has been the fact that no matter how much one might want to put uh, the genie back in the bottle, things aren't going back to the way they were. I mean, even a Tony Blair being Prime Minister of the UK wouldn't have brought things back to 2002. I mean, this is a country of significant political confusion. Um, I don't think people here really know what they want. I, I, I talk to people every day and, you know, particularly in the run-up to the election, I was speaking to a number of people who couldn't decide whether they were going to vote in the first round for Francois Fillon, the right-wing, uh, socially conservative and liberally economic candidate, or Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's effectively an egomaniac communist. So, I mean, I, in no other society would that be a decision. You you vote left or you vote right. How, how, how could it even be a, a decision between the two, you know? Uh, you should have some kind of political or economic allegiance to one or other side. Um, I, I think French politics is 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 very much stuck in this kind of "woe is me, France is not as important as it used to be." Do you think we should bomb Africa again? Kind of mold. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's right. But on the other hand, the, the kind of I think political configurations <coughs> happening across Europe and across the West, and not just and beyond for that matter. Um, might make these choices where you might flip between a centre-right conservative candidate and a radical left one might not actually seem that strange to us in a couple of years looking back. Well, perhaps, but I mean, you know, we've seen elections recently. We had the election in the Netherlands. We had the presidentials in uh, Austria with the caveat that the presidential office doesn't matter that much. Uh, And we have the forthcoming elections in Germany, which up until recently had been predicted as this kind of chaos. Is the alternative for Deutschland going to win? Now that Macron has won, everyone thinks everything's settled. Britain is going to go off and become, you know, its own little isolated island separated from the rest of Europe. The mainstream... um, sort of uh, clarity of, of of European opinion is convinced that the Macron victory is the ultimate proof that the populist tide, and I, I don't even like that term populist, frankly, but nonetheless, that this is the terminology they use, um, has, has abated. I don't think that's accurate, and I think that France is going to have severe problems. Uh, I think that Macron is going to look like a tragic figure in five years. So The Economist had this um, what-if section in its, um, most recent, um, in its most recent issue where it had this whole list of um, what-if kind of uh, what-if scenarios for the future. It was fascinating. And I'd recommend to all of our listeners who can get, a kind of, get hold of a copy to do it. So they had a kind of what-if if, if uh, Trump wins a second term. Um, they had a what if, and this was the interesting what if, is, or at least for our purposes here, was their kind of fantasy what if, was if Macron wins and manages to succeed in transforming France, 
in forcing through its kind of um, structural reforms in the economy that will enable it to kind of boost through to the next level, to take advantage of France's positive demographics, its demographic growth, its high productivity, and in order to enable it to become kind of a much more competitive, successful economy than it has been in comparison to, say, Germany. Um, and so it was an interesting, it was an interesting contrast. So, Jason, you've given us some predictions, like you know, you've been telling our listeners what stocks to buy. So, should they bet on the French economy? How far should they bet on a Macron presidency? What would you tell them in terms of investing their stocks and shares? What would you tell our listeners? <laughs> Um, I think that Macron will succeed in certain amount of uh, structural reform of the French economy, but I do not think that he is Jesus and can walk on water. I think the um, Macron mania, the euphoria, is is ridiculously overstated and has nothing to do with France and everything to do with uh, Britain and the United States. Um, I think that the EU will stumble on and Macron will probably make France a slightly more competitive economy vis-a-vis Germany, uh, but I don't think it will ever be as productive as Germany because Germany is effectively a giant political zombie, all economy and no politics. That sounds like, uh, that sounds like the great title of a, dif- a different session of our podcast. Hey, it's me again. Thanks again to Jason for what I hope you'll agree was a really insightful interview on the state of the media today. And thank you, listener, for listening in. If you've not yet followed us on Twitter or given us our page a like on Facebook, please do so. You can subscribe to our podcast via the RSS feed or find us on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you like to use. Next week, we'll be talking about more monsters of the interregnum, in this case, Charlottesville. I hope to see you again then. Please tell your friends. Catch you then. Bye-bye.